series called... <laughs> I didn't have a problem last service. We're in a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And in this series, it's really on the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you that don't know, I know we have a wide range of people here in their faith journey. Some of you are your fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You've got it together. You're leaning into him. You're not perfect, but you're following him. Others of you, you're investigating. You're curious. You're wondering. You're forced to be here, whatever it is. And everybody in between. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I tell people who aren't Christians, I tell people who don't even believe that Jesus was anything, I said, just read Matthew 5 through 7. And actually, I encourage you to do that, leaning into Easter. That if you just lived in those few chapters and saw what Jesus taught that was so radical and revolutionary and how we could actually title this series The Pursuit of Happiness because Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, You're all living your life this way, and it's a distraction. And it's everything you've ever been taught, but there is a new path that Jesus comes to to lead us to. Why did Jesus come? He says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that you might, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Other translations read this. I came that you might have an abundant life. I came that you might have a better life than you've ever dreamt of. I I came that you might be full. The, the, The issue is fullness. So there's these paths. We can go this path of distraction, or we can go this path of blessed, of happiness, that I came that you might have life. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing so much of the old teaching that these people had grown up on. It was the teaching of the law. It was the Old Testament. Several times you'll read, I think seven or nine times, I can't remember. He says, you have heard it said before, but I say. So he's referring to all the stuff that they had grown up on. And basically we're saying, "What what you have been learning has been a distraction that has kept you from living. Okay? And, and then he, Jeff actually talked last week about the Pharisees, and he talked about how they were um, obedience police, and they were behavior monitors. And basically what the Pharisees would do is make sure people were behaving according to religious standards. And if you want to know what Jesus thought of Pharisees, you might write this in your notes, read it on your own, look up Matthew chapter 25. And read Matthew 25, and you'll see that Jesus and the Pharisees did this a lot. They were just kind of always at one another because the Pharisees were about behavior, and Jesus was about the heart. So in Matthew 25, Jesus actually calls them painted tombstones. Think about this painted tombstones. What is he saying? He's saying, You're painted, you look good on the outside. You're behaving the correct way, but on the inside, you're what? Dead. That's what a painted tombstone is. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. Now, where we are in this journey and how Jeff has mapped out this series leading to Easter, the week that he has given me is the the week uh, where Jesus talks about marriage, talks about divorce, and talks about adultery. Can you say exciting? Okay. No wonder Jeff didn't try to save me from speaking today, that, that he wanted to come, come back. Uh, you know, I realize some of you brought your friends, and you're going, oh, great, you're speaking on marriage, divorce, and adultery, and you're like, slide, like, sorry, sorry, you know, tell, you'd rather me speak on money, uh, giving, Old Testament circumcision rights, you know, anything 
but this, right? We've got some you know, high school students that are going, oh, give me a break, marriage, divorce, and adultery. Just wait. It's going to get exciting. All right. So, uh, and, and by the way, this is the latest research. This actually just came out in the la- this first quarter of 2015. It's from the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. Tell me we don't have an audience for this message based on the newest statistics. Percentages of marriages that end in divorce in America, 53%. California, 60%. Orange County, has one of the highest divorce rates in the nation, 70%. Percent of marriages where one or both spouses admit to infidelity, either physical or emotional, 41%. Percent of men who admit to having an affair, keyword admit, uh, 22%. Percent of women who admit to having an affair, 14%. I like this one. Percentage of men who say they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught. 75%, okay, which gives you a little indication of the health of their marriage. Percent of women who would admit to have an affair if they knew they would get caught, only 68%, okay? Yeah, women, you are much, much classier, okay? Percent of pastors who want to teach on this subject in Orange County, 0%, okay? But regardless, there, you know, there's a lot of company in here. And for some of you, I already, you're already like, oh, I got this weekend off. Either, you know, I'm not married, I haven't had an affair, I haven't done it, I got this weekend off. <laughs> no, you don't. If I got to be here, I'm going after you. All right? Now, here's what I got to let you know. You will listen to this through your pain. I know, I'm not new. Okay, you're going to listen to this through your pain. So I gave a message very similar to this at Mariner's Irvine a while back. And it was after a Saturday night service. We're backstage. And I went a little long. I tend to do that. And they were concerned that my message might be too long for Sunday. So we're talking about, okay, you guys heard my message. There's like eight of us back there. My wife's back there. And then there's like really sharp people on Mariner's staff. And I said, okay, what can I cut? And this one woman, one, somebody I respect a lot, she says, well, there was that one section in your message where you said divorce is sin. You said it like three or four times. And I went, oh, oh. I just, I looked at my wife and we kind of caught eyes and I said to her, I said, I never said that. I never said that one time. Okay. Now, do I believe divorce is sin? Yes. Do I believe lying is sin? Yes. Do I believe gossip is sin? Yes. Do I believe the way some of you dress is sin? Yes, okay? <laughs> but I never said it. But here's a woman who has divorce in her background, and what was she doing? She was listening through her pain. So I understand for some of you, you bring pain to the table. And I understand you might walk at it with all different types of messages, but I really want you to hear less of what Doug Field says and more of what God's Word says. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus is talking about the route to happiness. He's talking about what you've heard before. You've been distracted. Here's what I say. Watch this. A lot of verses, so hang with me. Pull out your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 27, or look on the screen or in your notes. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, again, Old Testament, Old Testament law, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for have your whole body go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, that is a lot of stuff. And what I know is if I'm sitting where you're sitting and somebody reads a lot of verses, like half of them go in, they reverse out. I, just too much going on there. So what I did in your notes is I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to look at this verse by verse. I want you to see what Jesus is saying. And I've put the verses that came out of this passage in bold in your notes. The ones that are not in bold are from other texts, but the ones that are in bold are taken right out of this, this passage. So let's start with verse 27 where Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, where else, when Jesus says that, where else would he be referring to? Where else is the you shall not commit adultery found? Okay, yeah, Leviticus 20, 10 commandments, right? Right up there with, with murder. But let's think. Why would Jesus say, don't commit adultery? Is, is he, he doesn't want us to have sex with other people we aren't married to. Is Jesus down on sex? Now, some of you have grown up in the church. By show of hands, how many of you grew up in a church? Let me see. Okay. Oh, many of you. Many of you. So kind of one of the messages you've heard is sex is dirty and rotten and awful. So save it for the one that you love, right? <laughs> now, let me just help you understand this. God's not down on sex. It was his idea. It was his invention. Thank you, God. You know, you, and how wonderful is your handiwork? Sex was not invented by a caveman and cavewoman wrestling over a dinosaur bone. All right? You know what I mean? It was not, they did not create it. It was God's design and God's intention. So here's the deal. And he's, God is not nervous about sex it's not sex is not limited to the missionary positions because god preferences missionaries that's not it <laughs> some of you are like i can't believe you said that <laughs> nyquil so uh <laughs> god is not down on sex hear that here's what he's down on pain pain you cannot show me one adulterous situation that does not back up to a truckload of pain. There is relational pain and destruction everywhere. So when Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said before, and God's designed for living, don't commit adultery. It's not because, you know, he's not saying don't have sex. He's saying adultery tears apart relationships. Whether you are the victim of it, and there's a lot of victims in here of that, or you are the perpetrator of that. There is relational pain. Adultery is a breakdown of God's original design. I heard not too long ago, just a couple months ago, of a pastor. And I know this guy. I don't know him well. We've met. And um, he had an affair, not uh, once, but several times in his church. And when I heard this, I put on my Pharisee garments so fast it would make your yarmulke spin. And I just immediately, I start climbing up the moral ladder because I want to look down on this jerk. I mean, does, and he knows the Bible. This guy went to, he, what is, you, you know what you're doing to other people who try to teach the Bible? You're killing us with your hypocrisy. And I just start climbing my moral ladder because this pastor's committed adultery. And then I get to verse 28. Watch this. But I tell you, Jesus says, 
that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've got to be kidding me. In the eyes of Jesus, lust is the moral equivalent of adultery? Now, I'll confess, I know lust. I've experienced lust. I've, I've battled lust. I'm very familiar with it. And here's what the problem was, is that it puts me in the same category as this pastor, which sucks, because I don't want to be in his category. Okay? Now, are there going to be different consequences? Absolutely. But see, we can pretend to have it all together with our behaviors. And as a matter of fact, the longer you've been a Christian, the better you are at pretending. Okay? You, the better you are at pretending. We can, we can hide what's really happening in our heart. But we, we'd be foolish to think that we can actually hide our heart from God. That's what the scriptures say. Look at Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. What am I saying? I'm saying my heart is not hidden from God. And it's not just lust that lives in my heart. My heart is wounded and broken. And my heart can go sinister just like that. I mean, I've, I've told you stories before. But even this morning, driving to church and seeing a hundred bicyclists riding in a pack. And all of a sudden I think, it'd be fun to hit the guy in the front of the pack, okay? <laughs> now, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even swerve. But I thought it. I thought, I, and I don't want to see him hurt. I just want to look in my rearview mirror and see all the bicyclists just kind of bow, 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 bow. That would make me feel better. And, but, like, where does that come from? I can remember when my son was in junior high, and I had him and his whole baseball team in our suburban. We're out in Palm Desert in the middle of the desert. Nowhere, nobody's around. And I thought, you know, if I was to kill these kids, <laughs> I, I could bury them here. And, and some, uh, like, where did that thought even come from? And some of you are like, well, you were with junior high boys. I can understand that, you know. Okay. A couple months ago, I've got my arm around my wife. I'm sitting in the front row about to speak at one of the largest churches in the country. I'm a visitor there. I'm a guest. And I start looking up, and I start seeing all these security cameras. I'm like, man, there's a lot of security cameras. And it pops into my mind, it'd be funny to flip them off. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm just about to teach God's Word. I'm filled with the Spirit. What is wrong with my heart? And I'm glad you're laughing at it. Because you're just like me, okay? Maybe not as sick, but still sick, okay? And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that people wanted to draw a line in the sand and say, adultery on that side, non-adultery on this side. I am performing the religious duties, so I am on this side of adultery. And Jesus erases the line, and he brings everybody together. And he said, hey, if you've lusted, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So here's the deal. That's why I said I was going to get you. If you've ever lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart in the eyes of Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 8. If not, it's in your notes or up on the screen. There's a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. 
Okay, she's been caught. Now, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they're always trying to trap Jesus. And here's another one. Some of you know this event. The teachers of law and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, if you're visiting from either Washington or Colorado... We talk about stoning here. This is re- reference to rocks, okay? Not what you're used to, okay? So then he says, we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let me give you the simple version of the trap. Because G- this wasn't a matter of opinion. This was an Old Testament law. If you were caught in the act of adultery, you would be stoned. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, he actually violates what is called Mosaic law, the law of Moses. And nobody would respect him and they would go, oh, he's not from God. He's violating Mosaic law. If he was to say, yes, stone her, he would violate Roman law. I'll save you the details, but a Jew could not perform a stoning on Roman jurisdiction. So either way, he's trapped. Chooses A, he's gone chooses B, he's gone. I can almost imagine these, these Pharisees and these religious leaders going, <laughs> we got him, high-fiving each other. You know, doing that time. Whatever it is, they, 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 they got him. And then Jesus pulls a stunner. He doesn't say A, he doesn't say B. He doesn't say yes, stoner. He doesn't say no, stoner. Instead, he says, verse 7, let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Booyah! There it is. If that was me, I'd have been like, drop the mic, walk away. You know, that is, you know, don't mess with me. I'm God. But, you know, he doesn't do that. Instead, see, everyone wanted him to draw the line in the sand. And what he does, he takes that line and he erases it with his grace And in doing so, he lumps everyone in because he cares about their heart. See, life for Jesus and for those of us who are leaning in, wanting to follow him, it's not about looking religious. It's not about acting religious. It's not about performing those religious duties. What Jesus clearly cares about throughout all of the teaching is our heart because behaviors can be fake. By the way, this is an aside, but I know we've got a lot of young parents in here. Parents, you are so concerned about your kids' behaviors. And you're parenting for what I would call behavior modification. The problem with that type of parenting is if it's all about behaviors, as soon as they graduate and go away to college and leave you, they're going to perform the behaviors that are in their heart. Instead, point them to Jesus. Get them involved in the youth ministry here, in the children's ministry. Have their heart come to Jesus, because when their heart comes to Jesus, then they change their behaviors on their own. Then when they graduate and they go away to college, they take Jesus with them, not mom and dad's behaviors. You tracking with me? Okay. Behaviors are easy to fake, and that's why Jesus goes after the core motivation, which isn't what you and I look like. It's what's inside. Pick it up in verse 29. So he's just talked about adultery. And he says, 
if your right eye, okay, they're talking about lust, I'm sorry, and we lust with our eyes. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, what if we enforce this today? Okay. Any guy that's ever lusted, just gouge your eye out and, and we're just going to put a pile of eyeballs over there. Okay. We'd have, a, we'd have a whole stack of eyeballs. Every guy in here would be blind. I'd be the only one able to see all the beautiful women that are here, right? A bunch of blind guys stumbling around into one another. No. And ladies, by the way, I know when we talk about visual and lust and pornography and all that type of stuff, males always get hammered on that. You are not innocent. Okay? Maybe 20 years ago, you were innocent. No longer. As a matter of fact, 26% of all pornographic sites say users are women. 26%. And by the way, Fifty Shades of Grey did not become a bestseller by a bunch of horny men. All right, so let's just, let's live with that one there. All right, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now we've got we to gouge our eyes out and cut our hands off, blind and stumpy. Okay, this is like a horror flick gone bad. Is Jesus really saying that we should mutilate ourselves? Should we cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes or castrate ourselves as, as some early church leaders did who misunderstood this verse? No. What is he saying to do? He's saying to go radical. See, you could cut off all your limbs and still struggle with lust because it is a heart issue. He's saying, hey, look, the preferred life that I have for you, you've been living this distracted life. The preferred life I have for you, Doug, it requires you to do some radical things. It might require you to make some radical decisions to actually follow me to, this, to live this life that I, I have for you. But here's what we do. Instead of taking on radical actions, we want people like me or Jeff or pastor types to draw a line in the sand for us, especially when it comes to sex. And so we ask the question, how far is what? Too far, right? Just how far would you, would you draw a line in the sand? Because what I want to do is I want to know where unrighteous, if unrighteous is on that side and here's the line, then I'm going to take my whole relationship right up to, to here. Would you just tell me how far is too far or what is sex anyway? I did not have sex with that woman. You know, uh, I mean, from top-down leadership, what, what, and we were confused. And what about pornography? Is it really that big a deal? All it does is affects me. I mean, it's just, it's virtual. Amy does anything anywhere, anytime. I mean, it's not, it's not hurting anybody. Just tell me how far is too far. When you ask that question, you're putting on your pharisaical clothes. That's what you're doing. When you say, just tell me, where the, tell me where the behavior line is so I can get away with everything else and be okay with God. That's what Pharisees are all about. And Jesus says, I care about your heart. So let me give you a better question than how far is too far. How about this question? It's in your notes. Jesus, will you please change my heart to look like yours? That's a better question. Would you change my heart to look like yours? And it's a radical prayer. All right, verse 31. 
Jesus talks more about adultery, but he also brings in now divorce into it. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Let me explain this. A certificate of divorce was a human-made rule. A divorce certificate was handed out either conservatively or liberally, depending on what rabbi you followed or what is called a rabbinical camp, what rabbinical camp you were in. So, for example, Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was a liberal rabbi. And so he would give certificates of divorce out for all kinds of trivial reasons. Like uh, if, if your wife talked badly about your mother, you could get a certificate of divorce. If she burnt food, if she put too much salt in your food. I mean, they were just these ridiculously easy ways to get I would have added if she talks during your favorite television program. But, you know, TV had not been invented during that time. But those were all sufficient grounds for divorce. And so Jesus, in, actually in another text, he talks about why divorce certificates were allowed. Let's take a look. This is in, if you have your Bibles, just turn to Mark chapter 10. This is starting in verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him, Jesus, by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, here comes the Jesus boom right here. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning, let's go back to what really matters. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, here's the deal. Moses wrote these laws of uh, divorce. It wasn't because that's why God designed marriage. God did not design marriage as an easy out. Moses wrote these reluctantly because your hearts were so hard that Moses allowed it, but he didn't authorize it because divorce wasn't God's design for marriage. Now, Jesus gives an exception, and many of us know that. Verse 32, he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, so except for affairs, except for having sex with becoming one with another person, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. But what he's saying here is, he's saying you're not focusing on what's most important. You're going after what's distracting. The certificate is not most important. What's most important is the sanctity of marriage. That God created it from the beginning. Okay? He said, you guys you got your eyes on the certificate. That's not it. Why? Because there is so much pain that is connected to brokenness. Okay? There's relation, the, financial pain. Their kids suffer through that. Children suffer. Friendships are impacted. Everything gets messed up when that relationship backfires. And Jesus gives one legitimate out. Sexual immorality. If you became one with somebody else. Now, I would say, wisdom would say, if you are in a relationship right now, if you're in a marriage where there's abuse taking place, that you need to get out of that house and stop getting beat up, you know, to seek counsel and separate. You know, that's my own aside and, and opinion. You, you not stay in that situation and continue to get beat on. 
But when I look at, when I look at Scripture, okay, when I look at the totality of Scripture from beginning to end, God's design is that marriage would last. That's just his design. Now, does it happen in our world? Well, according to Orange County stats, 70%, it doesn't. Okay? But that's, that's our, his, his design. That was clearly his intention. In Genesis 2.24, right from the beginning, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes it to the churches in, in his letters. Here is the verse that everybody uses, Okay. And some of you, you've, you quote it and you don't even know where it's from. It's been used as a hammer. It's in Malachi chapter 2 in the Old Testament where it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what I don't like about this is it's taken out of context. And it's misused a lot of times when it's taught. God does hate divorce, but oftentimes the way it's taught is that God hates you. And that's not true. No, God says, I hate divorce. God does not hate those who get divorced. God hates divorce because it's not his design. God hates anything that breaks his design. See, God created husband and wife this way, so that it would be a covenant relationship. Some of you have been around the Bible for a while. You know what covenant means, unbroken. Okay, the covenant relationship. We treat marriage in the 21st century as a contract. And a contract, you can break a contract easy. You can get out of a contract easy. But God hates divorce because it breaks two people from becoming one. Now, I realize some of you, you're in a bad, you're in a bad marriage and you're struggling. And I just want to let you know, there is, there is hope out there. I have heard so many stories of people who are like, had showed up to marriage conferences or counseling with divorce papers in their purse, and they've turned away. There is hope and help out there. I put some resources in your notes. Just yesterday, I was doing the Refreshing Your Marriage Conference. Homeward, an organization I work for, is all about helping strong marriage, healthy parents, com you know, confident parents, and uh, empowered leaders. We can, we can help. There are people out there. There's stuff happening at Mariners that will, will help you. As a matter of fact, um, there are, in our own little community here, there are marriage mentors. Over the last year and a half or so, Jeff and I have been trying to raise this awareness because as we took surveys of the people that go here, marriage, struggling marriage is a big deal in our community. And so we've been inviting people to be marriage mentors, meaning they're not perfect but they've been married a little bit and they're willing to meet with other marriages to talk to, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever you feel like you need. And at the end of the service, let me just tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have some of the marriage mentors come up to pray for you. And if you want your marriage prayed for, it doesn't mean your marriage is a mess. You might have a great marriage. You say, absolutely, I want brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for my marriage. Or it may be a mess. Everyone in between. On these tables by the prayer walls is this little sign-up sheet. It says, we're interested in marriage mentoring. One, we'd like to be mentored. Two, we'd like to become mentors. It's also at the information table in the back. Maybe your marriage is in a place where you go, hey, we don't have it all together, but we'd be happy to pass on some learnings and get involved in some, some people's lives. All that to say, there is, there is help out there. I just finished writing a book called Getting Ready for Marriage. It's a premarital book and a workbook. And it is so much easier to guide single people that are eventually going to get married into the right direction than it is to redirect 
the, the course of a relationship, but there is help out there. Now, let's go positive, and I want to talk about what you can do this week to, to help your marriage, help your relationships. Okay, I put a couple things in your notes, just some action steps I want you to think about. First is this. I want you to go big with the small. Go big with the small. Next week, I celebrate, Kathy and I celebrate our 30th anniversary, which is a big deal, yeah. Um, and here's what I've learned in, in 30 years. In 30 years, it is the small, meaningful acts of kindness and servanthood and words that build a foundation for a healthy marriage. It's, it's the small, meaningful acts that all add up to one big deal. And some of you are like, what do you mean go big with the small? Our marriage is in trouble. We need a big idea. No, it's in trouble because you stopped doing the small things that you used to do when you were dating, you were first married. You stopped doing the small things. And what happened is your marriage began to just be 1% off. But 1% off over a long period of time creates this distance. And the truth is, you want to refresh your marriage, you start doing those small, meaningful, kind acts that you used to do at the beginning to redirect and refresh that, that marriage. Troubled marriages say, we stop doing the small stuff. Now, this idea, by the way, I stole it. Okay? All my good ideas I steal. You read any of my books, I stole stuff. But here's where I steal stuff from. Jesus. Okay? You know what I stole from Jesus? Jesus said, if you have even a small amount of faith, the size of a mustard seed, the smallest of small, you can do great things. Jesus pointed out the small things that were a big deal. You remember when everybody was given their offerings and they were making noise with all their coins and their change and the offering and Jesus pulls the disciples together and you see that widow right there that just gave a penny She's the biggest giver in the room. That little penny was the biggest gift in the room because it cost her more than anybody else. Jesus knows big is a result of these small, meaningful actions. Jesus is also the one that said, you want to meet somebody's need? Give them a cup of cold water in my name and you will be blessed. In your marriage, you just got to go big with the small. Some of you have missed your intended destination. Your marriage has landed in a place where you're like, we never intended it to be here. I know. Because you stopped doing the small, meaningful things and you created this distance. I'm wondering, are there things in your marriage that you're, con- you're making a big deal about that you actually need to go small? Let's reverse that. You're making a big deal out of things and really you just need to go small with them. I thought about this many years ago. Um, I was sitting on the toilet, which is uh, what I do occasionally, and I was thinking, and as I sat there, I actually started getting mad at Kathy, and I got mad at Kathy because Kathy did this. Okay? Now, I'm sitting there and going, really? Really? I mean, how hard could it be to, I mean, there was a trash can right underneath that. It, it, it would take, done, done. You don't even have to look for a place. To, and, and then it, it just hit me. I went, I, I, you know, it used to make me mad when she would do that. And then I thought about going passive aggressive and installing one of these in 
our, our bathroom, okay? But then I realized, here's what I, I came to the learning. I thought to myself, wait a second. When I make a list of all the things I love about Kathy, that list is so much longer than these little things. And I realized that I'm a maximizer. I make a big deal out of little things. Because Kathy was not sitting there going, <laughs> how can I get him mad? I know. I'll set it on top instead of replacing it. That'll get it. You know, she wasn't doing it to drive me crazy. And I realized I'm a maximizer. I make a big deal out of little things. And for some of you, you're like, well, I'm not going to stop. I, I mean, he still doesn't put his laundry in the hamper. You know, whatever it is. And you're making a big deal out of that. And you say, I want to care about the little things. And that may be why your marriage is in the condition that it is. You're caring about the little things instead of the important things. You're caring about the wrong stuff. You want to improve your marriage? Go big with the small, meaningful acts of kindness and service and words. And stop making a big deal out of the little things. And that's the first thing to practice this week. Second thing I want you to practice is I want you to return to the chase. Return to the chase. Men. You chased her before you got married. You courted her. You wooed her. You went after her. And you won. Nicely done, stud. <laughs> and then you stopped chasing. Ladies, you did the same thing. You just did it in a, in a different way. You, the way you smiled and you, you, you'd flash those big eyes of yours. And, and uh, you, I mean, you, you were like, you know, putting it on and going after him and and, and it worked. And then when all the ha what all of a sudden happens, we stop chasing one another. And you grab a new chase. And for some of you in here, you're chasing your career. And your career is more important than your spouse. You're chasing the wrong thing. For some of you in here, you're chasing your kids. Okay? Not literally, figuratively. That you're, your kids are getting your best time and affection. And some of you are like, well, aren't they supposed to? No. No, you got your priorities wrong. Here's the priorities. God, marriage, kids, vocation. Okay. Some of you, it's God, vocation, kids, marriage. You want to really give your kids a gift? Give them a good marriage to look up to. One of the greatest gifts you can give them is, is a good marriage. You're chasing the wrong things. And so now all of a sudden we've got this this South Orange County mentality that we're chasing so many things and we're so busy that we don't have time for one another. And we wonder why marriages don't last. We're just too busy. One of my favorite writers, his name is Max Lucado, he said it like this, busyness is an expert in robbing the sparkle and replacing it with the drab. The strategy of busyness is deceptive. Busyness won't steal your marriage from you. He'll do something far worse. He'll paint it with a familiar coat of drabness. He'll replace evening gowns with bathrobes, nights on the town with evenings in the recliner, and romance with routine. He'll scatter the dust of yesterday over the wedding pictures in the hallway until they become a memory of another couple in another time. Hence, walks won't be taken, games will go unplayed, hearts will go unnurtured, opportunities for intimacy will go ignored, all because the poison of busyness has blinded the wonder of marriage. I'd say the poison of the wrong chase is another way of saying it. You've got to turn your chase 
toward your spouse. And I know what you're thinking. All right, but who starts? Okay? Me or her? Me or, me or him? You start. Okay, you start. You can't change him. You've tried. He's tried to change you. How's that going for you? Okay? You could be completely right, but that's not helping your marriage. You start. See, one of my jobs when I stand up before people to teach them God's words, here's what I know. I know that I'm kind of a mess. I know that I don't have it all together. I know that I'm broken and that I use fallible words. And so I literally, I beg, I'm on my knees. I'm begging God's Spirit to give me something to say to you that would walk, you would walk out of here, especially after a message like this, not feeling shamed, not feeling guilty, but being inspired to pursue this life of following Jesus. And I take that very serious. And as I was preparing this message, what I realized is, wait, I don't need to come up with something clever to say. I just need to say what Jesus has already said. And I just need to point you to that. Because Jesus found people in similar situations. Let's return to this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and see what he says to her. So now Jesus says, any of you have sinned, you throw the first stone. And the Bible says they left one by one. So now the mob that was around this woman is walking away. And Jesus says to her, in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Meaning, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she looks around and says, No one, sir. And Jesus says, Then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. That is such a beautiful picture of God's love for you this morning. I love you. Go. Quit choosing the path of distraction and choose the path of blessing that I have for you. Some of you in here, and it kills me, you, are, you have taken on an identity based on your past. I meet people by the door every week, and they'll say things like, hi, I'm a divorced dad. That's your identity? Your divorce? That's not your identity. You're not a divorced dad. You're a child of God who has a past. Whether you're a victim, whether you're divorced, whatever it is, in your, that's your past. If anyone is in Christ, these are not Doug's words, stolen from the Bible. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Quit identifying your life as a victim. You're not a divorcee. You're not a single... You are a child of God. Who, and he loves you and he says... Go. Go walk that, that right path. I've given you a new identity. You're a child of God. Does that make sense? In John chapter 4, I'll end with this. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a watering well. And as he meets this woman at the watering well, they, Jesus moves the conversation from water to eternal things. And they start talking about stuff. And uh, Jesus says, hey, go get your husband. And the lady says, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, you must be a prophet. Well, you know, duh. And she, she doesn't, this lady doesn't understand that she's standing in the presence of God. She doesn't get it. And so she says to Jesus, she says, um, when the Messiah comes back, 
He will explain everything to me. And here's what Jesus says that I just think is so wonderful for us today. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. So you, you might be saying, what you're, you know, she's saying, hey, the Messiah will come. He'll explain everything. You might be saying today, I need forgiveness in my life. And Jesus says to you, I am he. I am forgiveness. You came in here, maybe you're looking for hope. And he says to you today, I am he. I, I am hope. You're looking for life. And he says, I am life. You want somebody to understand your pain. He understands your pain. See, Jesus gets into the depth of our heart and he changes us from the inside out. Not our behaviors, but our heart. Okay? You and I are designed for great relationships. There is a path to have those great relationships. We can continue living the way we've been living and that's not working for many of us. Or we can follow that path, the pursuit of happiness and lean in to Jesus. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I just want to invite you again to come up during the song and have your marriage prayed for. If you want to be mentored by another couple, if you uh, need help and hope and healing in any way, uh, there are people that want to be engaged with you and help you in that journey. Jesus, we don't want to be the same people as we leave here today. Would you use my broken and messy words filled with the power of your spirit to reach into hearts to whisper that you love them, that you're drawing them close to you, and that we don't have to be the same. We celebrate that good news. We pray in your holy name. Amen.